tell me, Professor, have you studied much philosophy? Philosophy? If science can't give you the answer, sure as hell philosophy won't, and certainly not religion. Bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? I'm William O'Flaherty from EssentialCSLewis.com, and this is the third show in a series of eight programs taking a fairly detailed look at C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. This is a book by Peter S. Williams. The focus today is on Chapter 2, and that title, listen carefully, it's somewhat tricky, The Positively Blunt Sword of Scientism. We'll get a great explanation of that throughout the show, as well as uh, hopefully a quick summary in a little bit. And if you're listening to this series, so far you know that Peter S. Williams will be joining me shortly. But before that happens, let me recap what the previous episodes have covered. The first show was an overview of the entire book, where Williams fielded a question from each of the six main chapters. The intent, of course, was to give you a preview of the type of material you will discover in the book, as well as the rest of this eight-part series. Last time, the spotlight shined on Chapter 1, where Peter S. answered over half a dozen questions on material addressing the theme of that portion of the book. That chapter was called Old-Time Atheism. Be sure to listen to these first two shows if you haven't already. You can pick them up at EssentialCSLewis.com in the podcast archives or directly at AllAboutJack.Podbean.com where you might find it easier to browse the previous shows. Again, that's allaboutjack.podbean.com. Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. With that out of the way, I need to welcome back our guest co-host, Peter Byram. I appreciate you helping me out again, Peter B. Oh, I appreciate being here. I'm loving it. Well, Peter B. is a freelance video editor, and among other things, he helps out a group called Christian Evidence Defend the Christian Faith. And now I'll let him welcome and introduce our guest. Thank you. Well, we are joined again today by Christian philosopher and apologist Peter S. Williams. He is the assistant professor in communication and worldviews at Gimla Collins School of Journalism and Communication, which is part of NLA University in Norway. Peter also works with the UK Damaris Trust, leading philosophy conferences for A-level students and undertaking writing, speaking, debating and broadcasting engagements. He's authored several books, including A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, An Introduction to the Love of Wisdom, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, and of course, the one we're discussing today, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. So, welcome to the show, Peter S. Williams. Thank you very much, Peter B. and William. It's great to be with you. One final thing before diving into the questions, and that is, in this chapter, we'll be looking at the underlying theory of knowledge that the new atheists have and how it compares to views Lewis had early in his life and what he uh, ultimately ended up holding. Well, with that then out of the way, could you maybe unpack or explain part of the title, uh, you use the word scientism in this chapter, and uh, could could you maybe explain why it is a blunt sword briefly, start off by giving a short (laughs) description of what scientism is and why its sword is blunt? Okay, well, um, scientism uh, is basically a theory of how we know things um, that, uh, for simplicity's sake, we can think of as saying that that the, the only way to really know anything is if we know it in scientific ways. So scientific methodology is the way to know about reality. Now you begin the chapter quoting 
C.S. Lewis from 1924, which is before he even became a Christian. Um, you quote Lewis about an essay by Bertrand Russell entitled Worship of a Free Man. So yeah. can you um, give us an understanding of what Russell's uh, beliefs were in that essay and what Lewis had to say about that? Sure. This is possibly one of Bertrand Russell's most famous uh, short essays, uh, Worship of a, of a Free Man, uh, in which Russell describes his uh, materialistic and pretty nihilistic uh, kind of worldview, saying that, that man is the, the products of causes that, that didn't intend to produce him, um, that everyone and everything is eventually going to die. And um, there's this famous uh, quote that ends with uh, Russell saying that within the, the scaffolding of these uh, truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be, be safely built. And, and Lewis says that this essay, um, he found it a very clear and noble statement of what I myself believed a few years ago. So that Lewis is, is identifying uh, with this uh, materialistic, nihilistic worldview that Bertrand Russell uh, expounds uh, and says at one stage that, that really described uh, how he, uh, Lewis, saw the world. Another quote from Lewis you share is, quote, Either there is significance in the whole process of things as well as in human activity, or there is no significance in human activity itself. You cannot have it both ways. Mm. If the world is meaningless, then so are we. Mm. When did Lewis hold this view, and what is its um, significance? This is this follows on from from this scientific theory of knowledge um, that says we can only know things if we know it through the methods of science, and, and the methods of science are understood in such a way that we we don't capture notions of of value, of meaning, of significance, of purpose uh, in scientific terms. So if you you only understand and look at the world through that kind of scientific grid. Uh, it's not surprising you end up with that kind of Bertrand Russell uh, nihilistic uh, worldview. And there are a number of ways of responding to that, whether you sort of embrace that nihilism or um, or you have um, uh, a sort of debonair nihilism, as uh, Richard John Newhouse has, has called it, a sort of more sort of existentialist response that says... Um, as, for example, um, Richard Dawkins does, he says, yes, you know, at the worldview level, sort of this nihilistic picture is true, but at a personal level, you don't have to get all sort of depressed and nihilistic. You can still have, uh, you know, worthwhile goals and purposes and, and in, in life and find your, your personal life subjectively meaningful. And I think uh, the later Lewis came to sort of view this kind of response to, to nihilism um, as a sort of trying to have your cake and eat it. <laughs> if the universe at large is objectively lacking value and meaning and purpose and, and significance and so on, then human lives within it are objectively speaking also lacking those qualities. And however much you talk about uh, a sense of personal meaning and fulfillment and enjoyment of life and so on, and let's all sort of be existential about this rather than nihilistic, um, you're really only talking about subjective purposes subjective values um you're, you're referring to um, to nothing but subjective personal reactions that are taking place within and, and so relative to 
this uh, meaningless uh, evolutionary process uh, that Bertrand Russell talks about and so on. Um, so that really the, the consistent response to, to Russell's worldview uh, is indeed to um, uh, have this uh, foundation of unyielding despair rather than a sort of debonair uh, nihilism that you can uh, find in, in some of the new atheists like, uh, like Dawkins. So I think because Lewis identified with, with Russell at one stage, he would reject um, the, the sort of Dawkins idea that um, we can sort of com- compartmentalise our broader worldview from our, our sort of personal uh, existence, our personal way of viewing our own existence within that world. Now, on the back of that, um, Peter, I mean, I, I'm especially interested in something that Richard Dawkins is. He's quite famous for saying this, and he says it quite mm-hmm. a lot. Other new atheists say this as well, but I'm thinking of Dawkins in particular. Um, he's quite well known for saying that if you ask a why question, why does the universe exist or why is the world the way it is and that kind of those kind of questions he says that those are just silly questions the why (laughs) question is just a silly question and so i can't help but wonder you know what c.s lewis would would make of that and whether you know he would also see that as being connected to this sort of blunt scientism yeah uh, indeed and i think it's uh, peter atkins who who, um, first said as well that why questions are, are silly questions. And um, I think Lewis would, would disagree with that. Uh, I mean, what does that even mean to say that why questions are silly questions? Is, is the claim that they are uh, meaningless uh, questions, in which case the, the answer uh, that either uh, that, they're, that they're meaningless questions would be meaningless, what are you re- referring to? Um, perhaps they mean to say really that, that all why questions uh, have uh, no answer because there are no real purposes uh, in the universe and so on. Uh, again, in which case it seems to be a sort of self-contradictory uh, thing to say. I mean, you only have to, to sort of ask the question, why is Richard Dawkins saying that all why questions are silly questions? Um, he is thinking that he is giving a coherent, meaningful sensible response to the issue of whether or not there are um, meaningful, sensible responses to why questions. Um, so he, he can't think that they're meaningless, and indeed he can't think that they, they all have um, negative sort of false answers. He's sort of saying it is, it is true that there are no answers to why questions, um, but that itself is an answer to a, a why question. He's, he's intending to uh, communicate his uh, worldview to us. Uh, he's intending to say something about whether there are genuine intentions or not in reality. Um, and you can't do that on the one hand and on the other hand say that there aren't any, really, I think. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I couldn't help but uh, think uh, it, this could be summarized as, you know, we should ask him why why questions are silly, which... Yeah, you know, is is essentially some of what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And are they only are they only silly questions if God doesn't exist, or are they intrinsically silly questions? Because it would seem obvious that if God does yeah. exist, then they're perfectly meaningful. So it would depend why he's saying that as well. Um, it, 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 he is prejudging the worldview issue. I think that I think that's right. Now, if if 
if there's a if there's mind and intentionality at, at the root of reality, as there is if theism is true, then why questions um, might uh, will have positive answers to them at least you know some of them if there is no God if if materialism of that kind of Bertrand Russell kind is true um, then why intentionality and so on really doesn't seem to fit within that kind of of universe but you need to, to you know argue uh, for that and not not uh, uh, prejudge the the issue just by s- dismissing the very question as as silly. Yeah. Well, one of the things I do want to note, as uh, should be obvious uh, to uh, the listener, is that we're we're not trying to cover all the material in uh, each of the uh, chapters. In fact, we're um, kind of going towards the, the middle late part. I think uh, of this chapter, there's a lot of other great material that we want to encourage people. I don't think we've even said it already. To be sure to get a copy of C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist by Peter S. Williams. In this chapter, you do quote Anthony Flew. Uh, before his conversion to theism, if I looked at your footnotes correctly, uh, about the statement, there is a God, as he compares it with the earth is a globe, why do you bring this up and how does it relate? Gosh, yeah, th- well, this follows on from um, Anthony Flew's uh, famous um, philosophy paper on theology and falsification, which is one of the most reprinted philosophy papers in the world. It was um, Flew's famous contribution to the whole debate about uh, the meaningfulness of religious language uh, that was going on in the early 20th century. And it was kind of his um, response to the the positivist verificationist school of uh, AJR and so on that said religious language has no meaning unless it's uh, either true by definition or or, or you can uh, empirically verify it uh, in some way, or at least in principle, empirically verify it, um, prove it uh, through the methods of science. And Flu had this famous paper where he said that, um, well, actually, maybe the reverse, maybe you can show that religious ma- language is meaningful if there's at least a potential way in which you could um, have evidence against its truth. Um, so, for example, the claim that the, the world is a globe that's a meaningful claim because there's clearly things, um, there's evidence that seems to count against it. I mean, uh, just look look at the world and it doesn't seem to be a globe. It looks flat from our perspective. Um, so that is uh, you know, an empirical observation that, that seems to count against the truth of the claim that the world is a globe. So it must be a meaningful claim. Um, and you can go on to show um, why it is that um, the observation of its apparent flatness from our perspective doesn't actually contradict uh, the claim that it is a globe uh, and so on. And um, Flew came to think uh, later on in life that actually this was true of, of, about the claim of uh, God's existence as well, um, that the, the claim that God existed was meaningful uh, because, for example, the observation that there is pain and suffering in the world. He thought uh, counted seemed apparently at least to count against uh, the idea that there was a God. Uh, But he also became convinced that you could show that there was no contradiction uh, between the existence of pain and suffering and the existence of God. Uh, And so by parallel, the claim that there is a God must be a, a meaningful claim. Now, you share some quotes by Lewis from two different works. One is an essay called The Language of Religion. The other is his book entitled Miracles. So now we clearly can't go into loads of depth from here. Um, 
But nonetheless, could you summarise some of what you think are the key points uh, from them that are related to what we've been discussing? Well, I talk about um, some of C.S. Lewis's fascinating uh, philosophy of language um, that he discusses in in, in various places, uh, including those uh, places that you mentioned, uh, Pete. And um, specifically going through his uh, paper on the language of religion, which uh, I think is a really sophisticated uh, critique of uh, the logical positivist attack on the meaningfulness of religious language in which uh, Lewis discusses the difference between um, scientific language and poetic language on the basis of his philosophy of language and uses those categories to construct what I think is uh, an argument against um, logical positivism and, and for the meaningfulness of religious language that um, philosophers have have um, somewhat overlooked, I think what the what this essay is really um, going on about. So I, I try in the book to reconstruct um, in clearer terms what Lewis is is doing there uh, against the background of that uh, early twentieth century debate about the meaningfulness of religious language. Yeah, I was just uh, thinking that uh, one of the interesting things about Lewis, the good thing and the bad thing is that there's so much volume of work that Lewis has produced that a person really has to put a lot of effort to, A, read it if they're even aware of it, and sometimes they're not aware of it because, uh, let's uh, let's be honest, there are quite a few of essay collections out there, some overlap, and uh, kind of making sure that that you cover as well as realizing that some of his stuff deals with his his original professional focus, and that is English. Yeah. And then he also deals with these topics related to the Christian faith as well. So Lewis has a lot of work out there and covering the material, uh, something I haven't said yet in regard to in, in this series, and that is your book. One of the things when I was reading it first, I was I was thinking, you know what, someone, if they had the time to read, you know, a half a dozen or more of the books from the New Atheist, which is really condensing because there's more than a half a dozen, as well as, you know, a good bit, at least that, by Lewis and others. Mm. If you read all that and tried to bring it all together, that's essentially what you've done. You've kind of uh, created a cliff note, although it's a regular-sized book, Mm. for people who are wanting to address this topic. So that's why I wanted to do this uh, series, in fact. But um, our time is going to get away from us. i got one more question, Mm -hmm. which is something that can be, be a rather long elaboration, and I appreciate you keeping it short here. We were just chatting about that. Yeah. And that is to uh, concisely kind of contrast something you cover in the later part of this second chapter. You discuss uh, strong and weak scientism. Uh, could you explain yeah. the, the difference? Okay, so strong scientism uh, is the view that the only way to know anything is through the methods of science. Um, there is a form of scientism we say called weak scientism um, that will allow that we can know some things uh, through you know other disciplines and so on and give them some some positive rationality status uh, but would still say that that science is the best way to know things that that science is the most reliable uh, way in which we have of knowing anything um and at first uh, blush you know strong scientism is is kind of obviously self-contradictory um, because it's not a scientific proposition to say that we can only know things through science. How would you know that proposition itself to be true through the methods of science? Uh, you can't, so it's self-contradictory. Weak scientism is not as obviously self-contradictory, but, but think about it like this. It, it, it involves saying that the, the, the most reliable form of knowledge, the more reliable form of knowledge, i.e. science, 
depends upon the supposedly less reliable form of knowledge, for example, philosophy. And this is obviously the case because in order to do science, you do have to presuppose a range of philosophical assumptions uh, about reality, our cognitive access to reality and so on, um, that you couldn't do science uh, without these philosophical assumptions. And yet uh, weak scientism is saying that the, the stronger form of knowledge is science. And yet, of course, science has to depend upon these philosophical and supposedly weaker foundations. But you know, how can the stronger form of knowledge actually depend upon a weaker form of knowledge? Uh, so, again, I think both forms of scientism are, in fact, self-contradictory. And with that, I'm sorry to say that this is all the time we have for today's program on Chapter 2 of the book C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. Again, we've been discussing the positively blunt sword of scientism Next time, we will explore Chapter 3, which is entitled A Desire for Divinity, and it's a question. I'm William O'Flaherty, the producer of this All About Jack podcast. Before thanking my co-host and guest for being here today, let me remind you to stop by EssentialCSLewis.com to visit the podcast archives to hear the previous two shows. This is where you can also check the show notes for links to online material mentioned in the program. And if you're listening to this episode after all eight shows have been released, then you can go to the podcast hosting site. That's a convenient place to catch them all, along with other single interviews that I've done, as well as a few other series. That location is allaboutjack.podbean.com. Again, allaboutjack.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Well, the only remaining duty is for me to first thank my co-host, Peter B., for sharing hosting duties with me today. Thanks, Peter B. Thank you. Also, then, I need to express my appreciation to Peter S. Williams, the author of C.S. Lewis vs. the New Atheist, for being the special guest today. Thank you, Peter S. No, well, thank you, guys. The honor is all mine. And uh, before you go, um, before you go, Peter, I, I cannot help but ask... Um, I mean, given that next week we're covering this a desire for divinity question mark, that sort of tantalizing question. Can you give us a little sneak preview of the kind of thing we can expect? Uh, sure. So um, Lewis's argument from desire, as it's come to be known, is a sort of fascinating companion to the, the more well-known um, argument from religious experience. Um, but this is a, uh, an argument that Lewis constructed not from um, positive experience of there being a God, but rather from the, uh, the lack of an experience, the, the positive lack, a desire, a nostalgic longing for uh, God and the, uh, the things that only God could provide to us. Well, that sounds very interesting, uh, Peter S., so I hope everyone will listen in to the next show and tell their friends about it as well. <laughs> 